This episode is supported by Vegamore. I'm a month and a half into my Vegamore journey. I don't know if you've ever had a garden and planted seeds, but when that first little growth breaks ground, it's exciting. And on my very head, I can see some new growth in the areas that I've noticed hair thinning before. And it's exciting to see those little babies coming in. I use the shampoo, conditioner, and the grow serum, which have a lovely, mellow, warm citrus smell. I've been consistently using this and it makes my hair feel soft and full. And it's really important to me that I use safe and conscious products whenever I can. And Vegamore is 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com slash mind and use code mind at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to the Mom and Mind podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On our episode today, we are talking with Dr. Carla Mayen, who is an accredited sports psychologist and an associate professor in applied sports psychology at St. Mary's University, London. In her work, she focuses on the mental demands of endurance performance, stress, and emotions in sport, and how to turn pressure into a positive challenge. Dr. Mayen has published her research in academic journals, and she's provided expert analysis for publications, including the New York Times, Runner's World, the Sunday Times Magazine, Cycling Weekly, Women's Health, and the BBC. And she's written a book called Empowered Birth, Lessons from Sports Psychology for Your Maternity Journey. And let me tell you, I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. It is just a fascinating take on how pregnancy can be looked at as an endurance event, an endurance sport, if you will. She's talking with us about how to approach birth as a positive challenge and why even link it with sport. Her discussion and explanation of the purpose of using psychological strategies like adapting and understanding the purpose of birth. And also we'll talk about the postpartum period and the idea of decompression. This conversation with Dr. Mayen was just mind-blowing for me, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. So let's meet Dr. Mayen. Oh, welcome, Dr. Mayen. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, so great to be here. I'm very interested in learning more about what you do, in particular, your understanding, your perspective, the information you have on pregnancy and postpartum. This is just very fascinating and I think a really necessary perspective for me to learn more about, but also I know a lot of other people will be interested in what you do and all of what you bring to understanding uh, sport and pregnancy. So please, yeah, if you can start us off with a little bit more about what you do and how it relates to pregnancy and postpartum in your work. Yes, definitely. So I'm a sports psychologist and actually my expertise in sports psychologist is uh, endurance performance. And throughout kind of my own pregnancy journey, a lot of people started to make this kind of link to, you know, giving birth is like a marathon. And so I started to kind of connect some of those dots. And a lot of the other work I do is around, you know, how do you manage stress? So how do you see demanding situations as a positive challenge rather than negative threat? So bring all of that together, I started to kind of really think, okay, how can we move towards perhaps more of a strength-based approach where we reflect on what we already got, you know, like playing sports, doing exercise. What are the types of psychological strategies that we gain throughout that can actually help us on that maternity journey? And from my own experiences giving birth, there was quite an endurance feed around 50 hours from water breaking to pushing my baby out. 
I actually realized that every single psychological strategy under the horizon that I taught to my students, teach to my athletes, I drew on and they were actually quite effective. And when I realized that and I started to have conversations with other women afterwards, I understood that for some, they have that kind of, you know, intention action gap that they have good intentions and they forget to actually put that into action. But there's also kind of a group of women who then have been able to draw from their experience in sport and exercise during their maternity journey. And I felt that there's a a story here that I want to share with people. And, you know, a lot of these strategies that are out there, we have them and we don't realize we have them. So actually putting them more to the forefront and making women feel more empowered as a result is kind of what I'm hoping to achieve with this kind of line of work. So I'm so excited right now. There's, like you're just saying, there's so many applications and I'm just hearing about a couple of them right now. So before we get into that, for people who don't know what a sports psychologist does, you listed a couple of things that you do. Just talking about sport, not necessarily pregnancy related. What are the kinds of ways that you support somebody? If someone were seeking out a sports psychologist, what are typical things they're seeking support for? Yeah, it's a great question. I think typically one of the very big things that traditionally people come to sports psychologists with are things like, you know, I perform so much better in training than in competition. It's pressure, like struggles around, you know, maybe self-belief, self-confidence. How do I control the controllables and not focus on the uncontrollables? Comparisons to other, kind of feeling the pressure to win. You know, what are the people... You see this with the World Cup going on at the moment. So the pressure, you know, based in London on, you know, the England women's team, like how do you work around that? A lot of us actually moving towards organizational psychology as well. So how do you embrace your social support networks? How do you integrate that? And there's definitely also more of a shift towards kind of, you know, mental well-being and mental health in sport next psychology. But I think traditionally, when we think about sports psychology, it's got a very kind of cognitive behavioral focus for a lot of people working in the field and the idea is that often when we think about clinical psychology is that kind of you know fixing things so going from minus one to zero a lot of sports psychologists kind of take that approach that you know things are, are okay well you know there's things that you can fix but you're kind of trying to get better so build from zero to plus one is an approach that's sometimes kind of taken in sports psychology so kind of that strength based positive psychology approach is definitely quite prevalent within sports psychology. I guess I assume, again, just in general sports psychology, you're already working with people who know how to push themselves, but they're in sport. And if they're coming to you trying to figure out how to be better, they've been working on that, but maybe there's like cognitive aspects are getting in the way or old patterns or things like that. In my mind, loosely, I'm connecting how much people, I'll just talk about women in particular, already um, do some of that kind of pushing themselves past a point and doing more and having to overcome a, a lot of things. And then you add on, let's say, pregnancy. Again, if we're just talking about just the cis women, uh, pregnant women, who are now in like stepping into the unknown, let's say if it's their first pregnancy, sometimes other pregnancies as well. There's just all these added layers of having to work with yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, that there must be such a high correlation, a high parallel to what you see in the sports. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's so much resemblance with kind of an area we call performance psychology. So we think about performing arts, you know, like we think about acting, music, but also when you think about business, you know, like Mm -hmm. if you've given presentations, you kind of feel that pressure. So how do you manage a lot of work that you do as as a sports psychologist about kind of how do you manage pressure? So you've got demands of a situation. There's a lot of uncertainty. You don't know about the outcome. There's a lot of expectations build around you like how do you manage that so you tip that balance in you know kind of that positive challenge rather than kind of a negative threat you feel you've kind of have those resources to manage that and if you've kind of successfully gave a presentation to like a big audience for example think about how you manage that what were the skills like what did you draw on and we're quite bad at doing that typically (laughs) that kind of you know planning we can do the execution but that reflection bit we're really often quite poor at we only do that when things don't go well and we need to move much more into actually I did an amazing you know you say like I had to juggle like a ton of things and I managed that 
That's mm-hmm. great. And when you think about the maternity journey, there's so many different things you need to juggle. And actually, how did I manage that? So I really pulled together and pulled from that reflection bit. I planned, I executed, but how did I then do it? Like, think about it. How does that then translate to if I were to have to juggle a ton of things again, what were the strengths that I can then build on? And I think we often forget that. And it's something that in sports psychology, like when I work with athletes, it's probably one of the key skills that I, I work with them on developing is that ability to reflect not just on your weaknesses, but particularly on your strengths to really give you that confidence. You can do it. You probably have a lot of tools in the toolbox, but you don't know that they're there or you forget to understand the, the, the reason why you're using it. Right. I'm just thinking now of kind of walking through a lot of folks that I meet with who are coming in as it relates to let's say postpartum depression, or even like a traumatic birth, especially with depression and anxiety, you're just really seeing all the the things that went wrong or that you did wrong. It's very hard to hold on to what either what went well or what you did that you could proud of. And it's very similar to what you're describing is that when you're talking about, if you can talk, I guess, a little bit more about that challenge approach that you're describing just to get a little bit more into that, I think it would be helpful for people to understand how you're viewing birth, how you'd like to help people understand birth and pregnancy. Yes, definitely. So kind of the idea of challenge and threat states comes from traditionally sport, uh, social psychology. So it's kind of this, this biopsychosocial approach to how we regulate arousal and stress and difficult or demanding situations. It doesn't have to be difficult, but demand. So You've got a situation like giving birth or an important competition, important presentation, and you've got different demands that are associated to that. And then you kind of think about what resources do I have available to cope with that? And if that kind of, you know, tips into the favor of the demands, you tend to approach something more as a negative threat. If that's more in a favor of resources, that tips into the favor of a challenge. So what are those resources? I think that's then the key thing, isn't it? So in our research, some of the things that we looked at in our applied work is that when we think about those resources that are really important, things like self-belief, so self-efficacy. So, you know, your belief in your ability that you can do, for example, a task, uh, but also things like perceived control is really key, kind of understanding what you can control and what you can't control. In sports, we often talk about the weather, but when we think about giving birth, like if the baby decides to turn last minute, that's out of your control. Like there's a lot of things that, you know, like, for example, I mean, morning sickness is not great work because it, you know, happens all the time, not just in the morning, but that's also often not something you have control over. So what are the types of things that are within your control and outside of your control? Those that sense of perceived control. And then finally, it's that kind of approach or um, motivation. So you want to kind of tackle the situation head on rather than kind of sticking your head in the sand, if you like. And then together, what we know is that if you can draw on those resources and they outweigh those demands, it has more positive kind of consequences in terms of the emotions you experience are typically more positive. Or even if you would experience anxiety, you kind of realize that, you know, maybe that makes you feel ready for example, competition, or, you know, you kind of understand that a bit of anxiety can be healthy to get you ready. And it also has beneficial physiological responses. So we measure kind of cardiovascular uh, reactivity responses. So things like in a challenge state, you've got more blood flowing through your body and kind of your blood vessels. When you think about that vascular resistance, there's less resistance. So it flows through the body, you know, in a more, you get more blood flowing through with less resistance. And together, that's quite helpful when you think about the kind of underpinning hormonal responses that are associated to that. And when we think about giving birth, you want to have that kind of lovely hormone equilibrium, right? So you don't want to have spikes of cortisol going on all the time or too much adrenaline. So kind of, you know, there's definitely then that link with how a positive challenge approach can help you from kind of physiological perspective as well. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. And for a limited time, my listeners get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products using the code MIND when you check out at oneskin.co. Well, I've kept up my mini resolution of taking better care of my skin after consistently using OneSkin for several weeks and all is going well. I can't see what's going on at a cellular level, but I can tell you that my skin feels soft and healthy. 
But they did do some cool research that looked at before and after exposure of the OS1 peptide to skin cells. And the one skin scientist found that the peptide reverses skin's biological age. And you can even see that study by Zonari A. et al. in the NPJ Aging Journal. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code MIND at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code MIND. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. New Year, healthier skin. That's One Skin. This episode is supported by Factor. Eating better is better with ready-to-eat Factor meals. And ready-to-eat means pop it in the microwave for two minutes and done. I mix in a few of these meals into my rotation for the days that we're on the run or that I don't want to make anything. I chose the high-protein and calorie-smart options, one of which is the mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice with garlic roasted green beans. This is restaurant quality and so tasty. I can adjust how many meals I get in my order as much or as little as I need every week. Plus, I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime, which comes in really handy for our busy schedule. Head to factormeals.com slash momandmind50 and use code momandmind50 to get 50% off. That's code momandmind50 at factormeals.com slash momandmind50 to get 50% off. And I love how you're, you know, what you do in the world, what you do with your work and your, your own experience really so sharply brought this together. And I think it's, I mean, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I think it's, people like you who make these connections that move us forward in understanding ourselves, understanding how we, what we can do and what we do have, I guess, control over or where we do have options, especially when it comes to things like pregnancy and birth and postpartum, because it's, it's one of those things where like, yeah, quote unquote happens all the time, but it doesn't happen all the time to you. It's, it's like new to you or the second time to you. And something that seems so common and is so common is foreign to the individual going through it. So figuring out where they can, where people can do things to help themselves through it is incredibly empowering. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that's, as I said earlier on, that one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book, probably if I've never had that kind of, you know, endurance birth experience myself, maybe wouldn't have triggered so much, but also kind of the conversations I've had with women who shared their birth stories afterwards. And, you know, they've gone to the birthing classes, but they've never given themselves the opportunity to practice any of these strategies that they were taught, you know. And so that kind of gap between, you know, the pressure's on, but you've never really practiced, it's not available to you. Those strategies aren't there. Whereas when you think about actually, I've used this a lot. I've given these really important presentations. I've performed under pressure, maybe in sports or other areas of my life. And yes, I can do this. Actually, I have practiced this strategy before. And it sounds so simple. Yet we need the kind of thinking outside of the box, I think, sometimes. And that's why sports can be quite a powerful vehicle for that, because it's just such a different context. But at the same time, you've got the pain, the discomfort, the physical efforts, the motivation, the pacing, time to think, there's a lot of resemblance in some of the kind of psychological and physical demands if you compare the two. Right. And just the idea of practicing your tools specifically as it relates to pregnancy and birth and postpartum is really powerful, potentially very, very powerful because you're right. I mean, when if, there, if you don't have practice using something, it doesn't even, might not even occur to you that it's still there as an option. Right. So the idea that you have about really thinking about what skills and tools you already have, it's so much easier to think about when it relates to sport, really, pregnancy. It's like putting this paradigm on top of a pregnancy and birth and postpartum is just so, I love this so much. So you're talking about using the strengths that you already have and maybe then building on that. Can you talk a little bit about what you go through in your book that helps people? 
Yeah, definitely. I think the first thing that's really important to note, I'm sure you're very familiar with this as a psychologist, is that there's no one kind of magic tool that will fix everything. So you need to understand what your demands are and understand what type of strategies will benefit those demands. And that will be different for different people. And that's okay. So we fall in this comparison trap quite easily. And learning from others is fantastic, but you need to understand your own situation. So what I've done in the book, there's quite a few kind of reflecting type tasks. What's really helpful is kind of first map out what your demands are. So you could potentially put a timeline together when you think about the different stages of pregnancy. So it might be, you know, your first trimester, what are some of the demands that come with that? So it's managing expectations, possibly rest and recovery, you know, thinking about that. Second trimester might be much more kind of building that belief, you know, my body is strong, I can I can do this. My journey um, is very easy, I think, in that second trimester to take in too much information about different people's journeys, but really focus on what's important for you. And then I was third trimester, it's really about pacing and controlling the controllables. And so when you think about those are the types of demands, what are then some psychological strategies that go with it? And I think when you then go into childbirth, you've got the different stages, obviously, of childbirth. But what you see is that people, I don't know, the US have got quite a few American friends as well. It's a kind of making a birth plan. And often it's, this is my ideal birth plan. And a plan B or C or D is often not even considered. And so what that does, it gives a lot of pressure. And you see this in sport all the time. Like people will say, well, this is my target. And that's it. Like I want to run a sub whatever hour marathon. And it's kind of this do or fail goal. And if you're very far away from that goal, there's this massive disappointment, these massive feelings of guilt. And I think you know, when you think about postpartum kind of experiences, this feeds into that. So if you've had like a really strict kind of do or fail goal, it adds so much pressure and potential for frustration, guilt, and a lot of kind of unhelpful emotions, especially when you're already navigating so many things in the postpartum period. So I guess that's one of the first things that I tend to kind of touch on in the book is that kind of full flexibility. So rather than kind of having a birth plan that's in set in stone, allow for some flexibility, allow for, you know, in kind of marathon running, I often refer to it as the golden goal, like your dream goal. Everything's fantastic on the day, perfect weather conditions, you've slept well, you know, there was no colds or whatever, and it's just your day. But often, more often than not, it's it's an okay day, you know, maybe a bit of rain or whatever, it's you've not slept particularly well, you're a bit nervous, but conditions are still okay. And then sometimes it's just not going to be your day. It's just about getting around the course. And I think, you know, you can go upwards and downwards. So sometimes you start on a, okay, well, it's not going to be my day, but I'm just going to have this bronze type goal. But you move upwards, it feels better. And when you think about, you know, pregnancy, maybe at the start, it feels quite hard. And then it might get better. And sometimes you have to divert back to your plan B, C, or even D. And the issue sometimes is that if you haven't considered that, it becomes much more of a shock. So if you've never even considered emergency cesarean section as an option, I find that when you then have conversations with people, they find it much harder to process. They've never imagined or used imagery or visualization to think about, okay, what does the theater actually looks like? So how many people will be there? You know, like when you have a birth in like a birth center or you know I don't know what the equivalent kind of term is in the US there's often only a couple of people but when you have a c-section there's a ton of people you know often like a dozen or so people there and it's just a very different situation and if you haven't visualized and thought about okay maybe what are some of the smells or some of the things around me it just adds to the pressure so that goal flexibility so there was a long very long-winded answer but that goal flexibility, I think, is one of the kind of first things to work on, consider as a strategy. And yes, I love the idea of goal flexibility. And this is, I mean, these are, I'm assuming sports psychology terms that, what did you say that, do, do or, or fail goal? What was Yeah, that? I mean, I sometimes call it a do or die goal, but that's uh-huh. rather inappropriate when I think about maternity journey. So I've changed it to kind of the do or fail goal. Uh-huh. But I love it. It so clearly highlights the position that we put ourselves in, not intentionally, but there is so much pressure and wanting to have that golden day experience. And that, oh my God, I just like all the people that I'm thinking of who have had this experience where it feels like failure. It's devastating. 
And it adds to how much depression and anxiety and trauma sometimes that they've experienced. It just adds insult to injury. And there, it doesn't register as like that things didn't go well. It, it registers as I didn't do this right. 100%. And I think when we think about goals, what's happening there are the very outcome-based goals that often the birth plan has an out, like quite an outcome-based goal. But what's really important is when you start to think about the goals you set is to have more process-oriented goals that you've got a lot more control over. So it might be your breathing strategy. And, you know, you can give yourself kudos. Just like, this is really hard, but actually I stuck to my breathing strategy. I'm really proud of myself. Or, you know, maybe it was a particular kind of mantra. So it might have been, so I interviewed a climber who used a kind of push, hug, blow mantra for the pushing state so she practiced that throughout kind of her pregnancy so you know and then when she would go into her labor she had that available to her and she knew exactly and it helped her to really focus on the process of kind of how to push and there's a couple of other women I interviewed and they they had those kind of self-talk strategies that were really process oriented And I think that's something you have so much more control over. So that's kind of where that perceived control from, you know, seeing this as a more positive challenge comes back. And, you know, you don't have control whether you're going to often going to have a vaginal birth or, you know, there's just things that are out of your control. And if you're what you say, like your golden day is not golden in the way it's exactly the outcome you would have hoped for. But hey, you managed to have a really good conversation with the doctors and were sharing the decision making. Maybe that can give you that feeling of empowerment or perhaps you managed to say positive things to yourself and got yourself out of like a quite a negative mindset. You know, that's great. That was within your control and you managed to do that yourself. Very process oriented. And that's something you can practice on that journey. Absolutely. And and when you were describing that, it made me think of the potential application for people who've had a previously traumatic birth. Like, and they're going into a subsequent birth, uh, how finding areas where they can manage and have that those process-oriented controls in place so that they can have an added feeling of sense of control or empowerment going into something that might be pretty terrifying for them, potentially. Even if things go well and there's not a second traumatizing birth experience, Definitely. That's why the work you do is so important. You know, when you work with women, it's tremendously important. I'm really excited to read your book and figure out how to, (laughs) how to use these strategies with the people that I support. So like going into that, actually, in terms of strategies, what are some of the things that you talk about in the book that are supportive? Yeah, so one of those are the kind of, you know, the goal flexibility, focusing on the process goals rather than the outcome goals, kind of sticking with goal setting. Another thing you can do is something called chunking. So kind of breaking up the journey in different pieces rather than kind of, you know, the moment you're pregnant. This is people often focus immediately on the kind of giving birth, but there's so much that happens in between. And, you know, the postpartum period is also part of that journey. So how can you break that down? And I guess to give you a very practical, personal example, when I was kind of, you know, um, I was induced, so I was on the oxytocin drip. And at one stage, you know, after being on that for, for a while, the midwife told me, oh, well, it's only three hours approximately thereabouts to go. So imagine that you've got that amount of like contractions to push through and you're like, so initially I felt a bit deflated, um, but then I started to calculate. I know it sounds a bit silly, but I was like, okay, a contraction is about, you know, minute, two minutes rest. So that's 60 contractions. I can do this. This is manageable. You know, that's okay. So I stopped clock watching and I just focused on one contraction at a time. So that's just an example of how you can use chunking um, as kind of a, a way of kind of setting goals that are quite process oriented and move you away from the kind of outcome. And make sure that whatever goals you're setting are meaningful to you. Another thing that I would suggest is kind of psychological strategy is self-talk. So typically in sports, you know, you have the kind of automatic, you talk to yourself all the time, a ton of thoughts uh, that pop in our head. But you can also be more strategic in your self-talk. So think about maybe motivational types of self-talk. So if you need the energy and kind of that boost to push yourself through some difficult moments, 
and you've got more kind of instructional type of self-talk. So what can be helpful for women to do is to think about, okay, what are the demands? What's the purpose of this self-talk? Would it be more instructional or motivational? And what would be a meaningful short statement that would work for me? Um, so it would be, you know, managing contractions as it might be, okay, if I get really, really tired and I feel exhausted between contractions, I'm going to close my eyes. It's okay to rest. If I, you know, get a bit annoyed with everyone around me, it's, you know, I'm just going to ask them to put some music on. So it's kind of, you know, or, or I tell myself that, you know, it's okay. You know, I can just go inwards and just focus on my own contraction one at a time. Or if I'm scared, you can tell yourself it's okay. You know, it's a new experience, but I've done everything I could to set myself up as well as I could. Could be an example and then when you think about kind of instructional self-talk, the example I gave earlier on by focusing on technique and, you know, the blow, hug, push is a really powerful mantra. But what I think that's really important is that whatever self-talk statements that you're using, make sure you're familiar with it. You've practiced it, even though it might be in a different scenario. It might be that uh, pain that, you know, you're in a, maybe in a yoga position where you hold a position that's safe but a little bit uncomfortable kind of gives you a little bit of discomfort or pain it might be that you're focusing a self-talk statement that says okay i'm gonna tune into the pain pain is okay you know the pain will help me because especially you know when you think about giving birth it's often a good thing that you're feeling pain it means there's movement but it's about communicating that pain of course to kind of understand when that pain might be too much so that's one example of how you could use self-talk as kind of a strategy Another strategy that's really popular, often referred to as visualization, but it's the idea that we create or recreate images in our mind using all our different senses. So you don't just draw on vision, but you draw on smell, taste. You know, often when you, if you would give birth in a hospital, there's often like this funny taste, this like different smell compared to when you're at home. So it's about kind of drawing on all of these experiences to visualize a scenario that would work really well. And in the book, I interviewed a, a midwife who also was an exerciser who had a really good kind of example of her visualization or her imagery that would help her. So she would take like, she visualized this giant yellow balloon in her abdomen and her pelvic area and it started kind of being deflated. And then when a contraction would start, she would breathe upwards and she would imagine that kind of yellow balloon or whatever color you love filling up with air and it floated up to fill her entire abdomen. And that was then something that was a visualization or a kind of a use of imagery that would help her with her breathing. Visualization or imagery can also be used to take your attention away from the pain. So it might be that you're imagining that you're on a lovely beach somewhere where it's really calm and you're visualizing the waves, uh, which is really helpful sometimes to kind of move away from the pain. But I would recommend that you don't do that all the time because you still want to tune into the pain to be able to communicate any worrying signs to the team around you. So that's just some examples of the strategies that I talk about. There's also, you know, things like breathing and mindfulness-based strategies as well. This episode is supported by Hungry Root. I am a creature of habit when it comes to food. Like I buy the same stuff in the store and generally make the same stuff over and over. Not really that fun. So in order to shake things up, I use Hungry Root. I can pick a whole meal and they send me what I need to make it, but I will also just let them choose so I don't get into my rut. And it paid off. I got the chicken shawarma non-flatbread. These are flavors that I wouldn't have thought to put together on my own and they totally work. It was so yummy and so easy to make. And bonus, I also received for free organic roasted chicken breast that I threw into a salad for another meal. Hungry Root is my partner in healthy and yummy living. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Mom and Mind listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash cat to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash cat. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. This episode is supported by Ritual. I am by nature and nurture a bit skeptical. I have to see for myself if something works or if it's helpful before I just believe it whole cloth. And I'm open to trying things out to see for myself. And that includes finding strategies for my wellness. 
I have a historically low vitamin D, so it's important for me to take Ritual's Essential 18 because it has D3 in it, and they're clinically backed essential for women. 18 plus multivitamin has several other high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. What I love and have always loved about Ritual is that it's a female-founded company, and it's a B Corp, which means they're holding themselves accountable and not just long-term, but also to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash momandmind. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash momandmind for 25% off. In the book, it sounds like you outline a lot of these strategies. It's really, really quite helpful. So in in some ways, I mean, like some people, right, might already have used some of these skills and tools. So taking inventory of what you've used before, what might still be useful for you. I think in some ways what you're describing is like, where might your vulnerabilities be and how can you support those types of moments? So it could be this like purposeful tuning in or purposeful distraction. And depending on what your needs are, as you were saying before, it's everybody's needs are going to be different. Even if they might use one person might use a tool and the next person might use the same tool, it might look different for each person. It's all customizable. Yes, definitely. Because we all have different demands, right? We all bring different experiences to the table. Every person is unique. And I think sometimes we tend to overlook this in a very generic kind of birth preparation courses where the individual isn't necessarily considered. For sure. Yeah, that is true. And I think too, again, going back to some of the unknowns that come with pregnancy and postpartum, things that are new to you, um, it's easier to fall into the as you were mentioning before, feeling like you should do what other people are doing, which is just a whole other pressure. At first, how could you even? And it's like trying to fit, you know, a square peg into a round hole. It's It just might not work and that's okay. It doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. It just means that you need to use the tool differently or find a different tool together. So I think it, it sounds like with the amount of tools you have outlined in your book there would be quite a few to choose from yeah definitely and it's about you know it's your toolbox and you know there's as I said earlier there's not one single tool that works so if you've got a a flat tire in your car yes you know the obviously the jack will help to kind of lift your car up Uh, but at the same time first of all you need to have taken it out of the packaging and have tried it because when you're under pressure you're not going to know how that works but at the same time you might need other things to fix that as well there might be this one tool that you only use once, but it's incredibly powerful. And there's other ones that you go to a lot of times for a lot of different reasons. And I think that's okay. So we don't just want to, we, we want to give ourselves some flexibility to know that we have a toolkit that's well-equipped and we know exactly how those different tools, their work and for what reason. So we go into that experience of giving birth and the kind of maternity journey, feeling that we got something there that could help us. And yes, you know, everything might go, there is a tits up on the day. But if you've prepared, you've done everything that you could, give yourself kudos for that. What you're describing right now is that part of like the kind of the postpartum or the come down or the, like, how do you describe in sports terms, like the postpartum period? I think it's an excellent question. Actually, sports psychologist is pretty rubbish when it comes to the hosts, events, experiences. And it's only recently that the English Institute of Sports is doing some really awesome work in terms of kind of helping athletes make sense of, you know, these big experiences. You know, when they go to the Olympics or they go to like these big events, typically, you know, they were just left on their own. You know, if you were lucky and you had a very good sports psychologist, they would look after you. But there wasn't like a structured process in place. And I think such a shame and we can do a lot better as a profession in terms of sports psychology to look after people I think in general not just in sports psychology but I think in general postpartum so important so what they've done is they kind of established or start to introduce this kind of more structured approach a lot of this kind of build on some trauma research and it's when you think about the kind of the debrief is they have four stages so they have this kind of hot debrief um, or actually a client I spoke to the other day calls it a brain dump Mm -hmm. so just 
it doesn't matter just like just get rid of or not get rid of that's the wrong word of saying it but don't process don't try to make sense of anything but you know it might be those text messages you send to your friends the dark you know nights it might be those messages immediately after you've given birth it might be that you record something in voice recorder write some things down it doesn't have to have any structure just literally a brain dump hot debrief and then what they have something what you call time zero so it's a bit more difficult when you think about you know you've got a new baby you can't just zone out so what they do with the kind of the, the big important like olympic games and say take some time away from the setting so it might be kind of just taking some time away from thinking about your birth story so it might be that you just maybe you don't want to share it to anyone for a little while and that's okay just to you know really take that time to tune into your baby or to do some other things for thinking about your birth story uh, and all the emotions that came with it so don't feel the pressure that you immediately need to make sense of it and I think we do tend to feel that pressure that we immediately need to process that emotion So hopefully that will help people kind of take that pressure off. And then what you can do is they have kind of a six-step approach of kind of making sense of the emotions, the feelings. So the first is contracting. Um, So what do you want to get out of kind of managing those emotions or emotional decompression? It's a timeline of meaningful moments. So can you put a timeline together of the kind of meaningful moments? Maybe it's giving birth or maybe it might be something that preceded it or afterwards. And, you know, who were part of those moments, who were there, how did it compare to your expectations, what did you do? So kind of without judgment, putting that together. So I gave an example of my own experience in the book where I put a timeline together. And then what are, from that timeline, pick one event and think about the emotions that you experienced in relation to that. Whether positive or negative? or where, Yeah, so you can use like an emotion wheel. And it's important to label the emotion. So rather than saying, I feel frustrated, then I am frustrated is I feel frustrated or this situation made me feel frustrated. So kind of distance, I suppose, and you probably do this quite a bit in your work. And then what impact did these kind of thoughts and emotions have? And then recognize the impact. So looking back at those critical moments, what got you through? What sticks out for you? Something you did? And what are the strengths that you want to keep in your toolbox? And also give yourself credit for going through the experiences. So that's kind of that fourth step. Is there two more steps? Um, so the fifth is to kind of utilize that meaning for looking ahead. Um, so look forward from the experience. You know, what do you see ahead in the horizon? How can you use that perspective? What's your plan? And what's something that you're looking forward to? And then finally, it's kind of summarizing that sense making and those action points. So where do I go from here? That's it's just amazing how many parallels there are when this sport experience and the, the pregnancy birth postpartum experience. It's like you're training for this event and then you have the kind of recovery from in many ways. I mean, certainly there are differences, but... Uh, oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> I'm not saying they're totally equal, but just mentally, emotionally, I think it's so helpful with the overlay of the, the sports psychology models that you're describing as a way to just even just to hold on to something during the pregnancy, birth, postpartum period as a framework for ways that you can help yourself through it. If it applies to you, certainly. It just, I love stuff like this where these worlds sort of collide, but they should have always been together. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because sports Mm -hmm. psychology is a relatively newish profession or like this like area of psychology mm-hmm. so initially they borrowed a lot um so some of this like decompressions from trauma psychology mm-hmm. and then put it into like a sports kind of flavor if you like area discipline and then it comes back and i think sometimes that's what we need we need the out of the box thinking to apply yes. it sometimes in a little bit of a different way to make it more helpful more powerful just a little bit we yeah. think about it and see it differently yeah, absolutely. I, um, all of the perspectives, all of the approaches are needed because as you've mentioned a few times, it's not one size doesn't fit all. And we're all so, you know, we, we go through similar experiences, but we're also different. Our experiences shape us in so many different ways. So to be able to draw on these tools and these perspectives is, I just like a very, it feels, how can I say, like it feels like a breath of fresh air to me. For me, even to have a new way to think through helping my clients and see what works for them, you know, because we, I like we as clinicians need tools to support people through all of this. And I'm really excited. 
<laughs> I'm sort of like just very excited. I'm going to, I look forward to using what you're describing and, and to supporting people that I help as well. Oh, so these are all fantastic strategies. Are there other things that you would like for people to be aware of or think about in their journey? Yeah. So one of the other things I talk about in the book is social support. So a lot of the things are individual when we think about self-talk strategies and goal setting, but we also need to think about the people who support us through the maternity journey and how can we use them. And I think the key thing here is to really make sure that that support that's been given to you is also perceived by you as support. And I think that's sometimes where some of the the mismatches arise. So people think they're giving you a lot of information, but the information is incredibly inappropriate because they don't really understand your circumstances. So it might be a midwife giving you a leaflet about rest and recovery. That's not applicable to your situation because maybe you do some night shifts or, you know, it could be like a whole host of different things. So it's really important to kind of have those conversations with your support team to understand that they understand what the demands are that you're facing mm-hmm. and how they can best assist you with that. So, you know, it might be that some people are very good in giving you informational support and it's very suitable and helpful. You know, that practical support driving you to appointments, perhaps, you know, doing some of the cleaning, the helping you with food preparation. But then it's also the emotional support that's really, really key is that people are kind of on that same level and can tune into your emotions. And this can be really, really tricky when you think about your birth partner, whoever that is, it might be the parent of the child, but it could also be something, someone completely different. You want to make sure that you're understand, that they understand your needs in that moment when you're on that kind of childbirth journey. And, you know, when you're giving birth, it's one of the examples I give in the book is that it might well be they've never seen you in such discomfort, pain and kind of in that particular emotional state. And that's why I'm kind of emphasizing emotional support is such a key thing. And so make sure that whoever's going to be there with you at that birth understands how you respond in situations like that. And so one of the, the women, so in the book, I interview women and they kind of give their birth stories and examples that I then draw from. She talks about how, you know, she ran a couple of marathons and during her training, her husband would run with her and sometimes she just wanted to give up and she really struggled and, you know, she faced some, you know, in, in marathon running, sometimes it's the call of facing the demons or the demons come out to play. <laughs> and he's seen her in her most vulnerable state. And that was so helpful because it wasn't just a received, like given support, but she knew that would be perceived by her as support because she's seen it being applied successfully And that's such a powerful narrative is that whoever's going to be there, you want to make sure that they understand how you perform under pressure and what you need. And if they really struggle seeing you in a very vulnerable state, you need to have that conversation quite early on. Mm -hmm. And I think these are difficult conversations to have. So when we think about social support, don't leave the difficult conversations till the end. And I think especially around who's going to be at the birth. So, you know, we think about cultural differences, you know, some cultures, there's a whole bunch of people there. And for some people that works incredibly well because they need that distraction. And so for them, that received support is perceived support, whereas for others that doesn't work, but they find it really intimidating to have that conversation. So it's about kind of understanding that and giving your support crew really clear instructions. So think about this quite early on when the pressure is maybe not so much on just yet. So what makes something for you as really perceived and felt genuine support. What do you need? If you find it difficult to verbally communicate it, write it on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Maybe record it. Maybe if you love video editing, go and make a video and tell people what really works for you because it's one of the key things. And we know from research that if you have that perceived support, you tend to have better birth outcomes. And that's quite a consistent finding that I'm sure you're aware of from the research. So it's about engaging your support team. And just to give you another example, I interviewed a personal trainer who did a lot of high intensity interval sessions as part of her kind of, you know, sports. And her midwife knew this and her partner knew this. And when she was really tired, they drew on that and they said, listen, you know, high intensity interval, like what are the intervals like? It's like a, a minute, you can do this. Mm. And she had completely not thought about that, but that really got her back on track so for people to know what it is what makes you tick 
and what motivates you, what can get you out of difficult situations. So share those strategies, share why they work, what the reason is they're working is, is probably the most important thing. Because if they give you strategy that doesn't really work when you're really overwhelmed, then that's where the trouble, oh, not trouble is a bit, but that's where some of those insecurities can come in. This is so good. I mean, even just, how am I thinking of it? Like this, some of the things you're talking about are so important in the perinatal mental health world, which social supports being one of them. But the way you're phrasing it, the words you're using to describe it, and using like a, I, I'm assuming more of the like sports psychology phrasing, it, for me, as I'm hearing it, it just makes so many more connections for, to how, how can I say, just, just how you're describing, like the received support, is it perceived support? And this is something that we talk about all the time in perinatal mental health world, make, making sure you have support that feels supportive. But there's something about hearing it in a different phrasing using like maybe slightly different words that just, I don't know, I can't really quite describe exactly what it does, but it almost like freshens it up for me and brings it to a just a slightly different depth of importance and understanding. So anyways, just personally, I appreciate yeah. all of what you're bringing today. It's so, so useful. And I know that people who are out there listening, which is good share of practitioners listen, therapists, but also people who have lived experience are both really going to benefit from what you've brought for us today. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Me too. I'm definitely going to get your book and dive right in. So thank you so much. And the book is Empowered Birth Lessons from Sports Psychology for Your Maternity Journey. Thank you for your time and for being with us today. Thank you. All right. So please do go get connected with Dr. Carla Mayen at carlamayen.com or on Instagram at Carla Sport Psychology, on Twitter at Carla Mayen. And you can also find her book, Empowered Birth Lessons from Sports Psychology for Your Maternity Journey. And I'll have the link for you on where to find her book and where to connect with her on social in my show notes. And please do check out my new podcast series called Behind the Sessions, where I dig into everything therapy related. These episodes will come out every other week on Thursday, and you can find those episodes right where you already listened to these episodes. No need to do anything different. They'll just get downloaded right into your feed. So please do subscribe so you don't miss any of those episodes. Thank you so much for being with us. Until next time. Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com, where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.